Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. So we are living in an age of incredible technological innovation, but is it really benefiting humanity? MIT professors Daron Atimoglu and Simon Johnson have a tremendous new book on this exact question, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Professor Daron Atimoglu joins me today. Welcome. Thank you, Alice. It's a true pleasure to be with you. For the third time? For the third time, yes. Best of luck. (laughs) Thank you. I need it. I will need it. I have organized this podcast into six sections. I thought we should start off by thinking about how your theory departs from earlier books. Then I want to talk about premature deindustrialization in developing countries, early versus late industrialization. When does technology improve welfare? What's caused the fall in worker power? Is it globalization or automation? Why has automation increased and how can technology be redirected? Should that be top down or bottom up? Okay. Perfect. Are we, do we have a couple of days to cover all of these topics? <laughs> okay, they're on. So you argue that whether a new mode of production improves wages depends on three conditions, worker marginal productivity, worker power, and vision. Can you explain? First, I think in economics, we have jumped too quickly from technologies improving average productivity to actually raising marginal productivity. This is what happens in some of the most common models, but those are because of simplifying assumptions, such as you know simple production functions, such as Cobb-Douglas, or because of other long-run adjustments. But none of those are really compelling when you think about historical episodes. But perhaps the best way of understanding that is not to think about history, but the future. The oft-made prediction about the factory of the future is that it will have two employees, a man and a dog, the man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there so that the man doesn't touch the equipment. So if that factory becomes a reality or even we are approximately in the vicinity of something like that, you can see that average productivity, total output divided by labor will be very, very, very high. But the marginal productivity, meaning the contribution of that worker to output is nil. So even in the best functioning labor markets, firms will not rush to hire more employees and their dogs, and we won't have very high wages, even though output increases. If that's the case, we're not going to have shared prosperity because most of us actually earn our living in the labor market. So the first important thing is that we need the types of technological changes that increase both average productivity and worker marginal productivity. Second, even if worker marginal productivity increases, if all power is in the hands, of the employers, they may not pay higher wages. After all, the cotton gin hugely increased the marginal productivity of cotton plantation workers, but those poor souls happened to be enslaved black people and their coercion intensified as the cotton economy boomed. Now vision for us is critical because it shapes the other two. So what types of technologies we develop and adopt? What types of organizations we favor? Those are gonna depend on vision, especially a vision of powerful people today, Sam Altman, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg. In the past, it may be the bosses of the largest corporations or people who set the agenda for the types of technologies that we're developing. Okay, 
Ruby, I want to pick up on two points there. Firstly, so you say that technology improves welfare when it raises worker marginal productivity, right? So when it leads to these new task creation. But I wonder, is that only true of humans who exist independently of labor demand? If we think about beasts of burden, you know, when I'm in Fez, when there are mules and oxen in Cambodia, they are only brought into being because of labor demand and then they suffer. Right. So technology may actually improve welfare when it displaces demand for non-human animals. Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, I find the philosophy of how inclusive we should be in our welfare measures very interesting and quite deep. And so I've stayed away from it. So in the book, we don't actually talk of welfare. We talk of shared prosperity and we take it axiomatically that shared prosperity is a good thing. But we don't consider broader welfare issues, although I think there are some of those that are quite relevant about the future of work, like, for example, how happy or dystopian would we be if all work disappeared? But issues of animal welfare, I think, are very interesting, but beyond what we talk about in the book. After all, you know, some of the huge technological breakthroughs liberated horses or turns them into uh you know meat so yeah. i don't know which which one uh is worse uh well the current horses die but then you don't get more horses being brought get, into being right. for a life of suffering okay yeah. now let's go back to vision so why nations fail and the narrow corridor largely implied that each group wants to advance their self-interest and they're more able to do so if they're strong and unified but now you're saying we should pay more attention to vision so I would like you to do me a favor and convince Daron of four years ago why social scientists should also incorporate the vision. I'm not sure whether I would be able to convince Daron of four years ago. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Daron of four years ago was already thinking of some of these issues, but 10 years ago, perhaps, you know, stubbornness is not a very easy thing to get rid of. But no, I mean, I think in social science, one path of progress with all its shortcomings is you make simplifying assumptions and you push them. So I think even when Jim and I worked on why nations fail, we of course knew that norms matter. And we of course recognize that people will have ideas and those ideas will push in different directions, but we didn't really think too hard about how to incorporate those. Why do, did I feel compelled to take these issues more seriously in the current book, because I think they become so much more central when we are talking about technologies. Because you see that people really need to have a kind of almost an ideology in order to go all in on a path of technological change or technological deployment, such as our example of Fernando Lesseps in chapter two. You know, he brought his own ruin as well as his own success because of his dogged conviction about certain ideas. And that's not about self-interest. It's really, he convinced himself of a vision and he followed it. And it's relevant because, you know, it's not only that large companies today dominate technology, centralize information, and that's super profitable for their owners. But many, many, many of their top engineers become convinced of a particular way of viewing the future world, and they work towards that, even when that's not necessarily the 
only or even the best path for the future for themselves, for their groups, for their economic and other interests. Okay. Now, the section I really love is on ideological persuasion. This too is new. You argue that rich people command higher status, which in turn makes them more persuasive. And that ideological power is reinforced by institutions that entrench their wealth. And you give a really great example of the 2008 financial crisis. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I mean, let me actually, before I go to the 2008 financial mm. crisis, let me tell you why, again, that sort of was so central for Simon and my thinking on this. Because, you know, we wrote, both Simon and I are convinced technological change is the root cause of why we are so much more comfortable, so much healthier, so much more prosperous today. But we wrote the book partly as a corrective against techno-optimism. And the thing that, you know, strikes you when you start thinking about it this way is not that, you know, people in Silicon Valley who are becoming rich out of their technological innovations are optimistic about them. But all of the intellectual gatekeepers in the United States are crazily optimistic. All of the tech journalists are mesmerized by these widgets. When they're supposed to actually hold these companies accountable, they just follow every little idea they have. So how come? So that's where ideological persuasion became so important. And why is it that, you know, all of the journalists in major newspapers are so mesmerized by the tech companies because tech companies are so successful in the United States. For good reason, they are the engine of economic growth and the US has really enjoyed tremendous prosperity because of Silicon Valley, but also because you know, they have used this power to enrich themselves with venture capital funding, with their huge sizes, and all of that builds an image of success and success brings together with it a huge power to persuade others that you are in the right. Let me push back about that again okay. slightly. Mm -hmm. So I'm totally with you that successful people, like for example, I was in Alabama and people saw Trump as our president and that's partly because of the veneration of wealth and he markets himself as a successful businessman. So I'm with you on that. But if you're saying that we venerate wealth and we recognize and we venerate those with high status uh, and wealth, what about you know, the culture wars, that's incredibly politicized. You know, there's incredible discontent and dissent about various aspects of culture, but that seems totally detached from who has higher wealth. You know, many of the wealthiest people in America would be pushing a liberal agenda, but they don't right. seem to have the power to convince everyone else. Right. I mean, so first of all, I mean, absolutely, you're 100% right, Alice. I didn't mean to say that wealth immediately brings with it full persuasion. In fact, one of the topics of my next big agenda with Jim Robinson is to actually think about the backlash that success creates. And you can see that in the case of Wall Street, the example that you mentioned, you know, those two forces were functioning together. Wall Street bankers became figures of hate in some quarters because they were so powerful and they got what they wanted. But partly they got their, what they wanted because their access, their ability to talk to powerful people, journalists and policymakers, together with their success, again, measured by wealth and money, made them so convincing about, you know, the financial system is critical and it's going to fall to pieces unless we you bail us out. But that didn't stop other people then reacting to them. And I think we have the same situation 
in the culture wars that you know those who are enjoying the fruits of globalization and technological change have an ability to convince others some guardians of public opinion but on the other hand their agenda is also creating a lot of backlash you know the general point that i sort of always emphasize is trump is probably one of the most flawed figures in at least recent history but that doesn't mean that the anger that he is articulating is false there are real reasons both cultural and economic and i think the kind of questions that you're asking need to be asked for probing that. Okay, now let's shift to development economics. How much of premature deindustrialization is due to automation? I don't know. I suspect quite a bit of it, but it's been an open question. Now, the current book has also convinced me that things that several economic historians argued in the past were really important, such as, for example, the deindustrialization of India as it became colonized by the East India Company and the British government was really very, very important in setting back that country by a century or more. And if that's the case, premature deindustrialization, the word that Danny Roderick coined for uh are for for the phenomenon that many developing countries according to their current level of development and sectoral composition should have growing manufacturing sectors but they have shrinking manufacturing sectors that could be really important for their future growth potential and in fact the success stories south korea taiwan hong kong china later were the ones that did really expand their manufacturing and exports. So that premature deindustrialization really could be a big problem. Why that happens, you know, there are many factors at play. I think automation is really important. Globalization, the, the type of globalization we've had is probably important because many of those countries ended up competing against China. And China, you know, exploited cheap labor, good technology transfer, and economies of scale. Uh, they may have had the wrong macroeconomic policies like overvalued exchange rates that made it hard for them to be exporters and uh, benefit from export demand for scale. Again, my money is on automation as, you know, not not robots, not AI, but, you know, the more sort of uh, numerically controlled machinery and automated conveyor belts, et cetera, reducing costs and making Western companies more competitive than they would have been otherwise. But but I think we don't have conclusive evidence on that. So let me let me pick up on that. So when explaining why some countries are rich and others are poor, some people might invoke institutions or culture or geography. Well, who would do that? <laughs> but here's a question for you. To what extent did East Asia just have good timing? It industrialized at a time with when when you could have low enough wages, you could use relatively labor-intensive methods and still be competitive in global markets. But that avenue now seems foreclosed because automation is able to displace very cheap labor, as in Bangladesh. One hundred percent, yes. They had the right institutions, which weren't great, but a little bit better than some of their peers. Some fortunate policies good human capital and good timing i mean you know there, there are so many things that in my mind are so fortunate about taiwan and south korea for example in my reading although this is very speculative they wouldn't 
do what they did if it wasn't for the threat of communism. Both countries had to find a way of justifying their existence against a small but growing fringe of revolutionaries and, uh, and, and economic growth one that actually benefited a significant number of people in the country was a very uh, attractive thing. I mean, you know, otherwise, how do you explain Kuomintang being one of the most vicious extractive kleptocratic regimes in mainland China and suddenly they become a developmental dictator, uh, dictatorship once they're on the island of Taiwan. So it's, it's hard to see. So, but the timing that the world was ready for first to labor intensive, low value added and then move up the value chain. That was a great timing. Yes. Okay, here's an extra point. And this is a question. I'm, you know, what do I know? But I want to ask you about demand. So you say that technology that merely duplicates the existing tasks of human labor is not as good as technology which complements human labor with new tasks, right? But aren't new tasks usually tied for new products for which there must be new demand? So you give this big example of automation paired with the creation of new tasks for workers, right? The assembly line of manufacturing cars. But that took place in a country at the technological frontier, the USA, with strong internal demand for new products, whereas developing countries tend to have this problem of weak internal demand, so they export to rich countries. So isn't there something about demand that we also need to think about? That's a great point. Uh, possibly, yes. In fact, many of the examples of new tasks do occur in the context of new products. But sometimes the new products are created from new tasks and sometimes the other way around. So let's just step back for a second and 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 sort of go over the argument that you just summarized, because I think it's a very important argument. So first of all, what are new tasks? I think new tasks are what Keynes missed. And Keynes got so many things right, it's surprising that he missed anything. But you know, when he uh 1929, he wrote the essay about the uh, economics of our grandchildren. He was bang on target about, you know, how much productivity growth there would be in the next, you know, 80 years. He was bang on target that this would take the form of labor-saving technologies, that you would have lower labor requirement for many of the industrial processes that were at the heart of the economy at the time. So that's why he jumped to technological unemployment and he had semi-utopian, semi-dystopian ideas of people not working or working much less or whatever. So what did he miss? Why didn't that happen? Well, what he missed is that as automation was taking place and technological improvements were increasing average productivity, the economy was also creating a lot of new tasks like you know the example of the Ford Motor factories that we emphasized where automation went hand in hand with a whole number of technical tasks which were critical for the cars to be produced and inspected, maintained, quality controlled, better engineering, better back office tasks. Now, in that example, it's quite clear that without mass demand for cars, those new tasks would not get off the ground. And they were critical for, say, for example, the auto industry going from a few thousand employees to 400,000 employees. You know, if, if you couldn't do that without new tasks because if you all you did was automation, you're not going to have that sort of employment growth. But you couldn't do that without a huge increase in demand as well. So those two are accompanying each other. But if you look at other examples, sometimes it is the new tasks that are creating the new demand, like ATM machines. You know, ATMs should replace tellers. 
But for the first few decades of the mass adoption of ATMs, the number of tellers did not decline much. Why is that? Well, because tellers now shifted to other tasks, more advising, financial product um, uh, management, and marketing. So they created these new products for which then the consumers had demands because it actually helped them in various different ways. But it was the two sort of came together. It wasn't like the demand drew the new tasks together with it. But you are probably still right that somehow if there was a Keynesian or other limit to aggregate demand, that might uh, retard or prevent the creation of new tasks. Okay, now I have another question going back to premature deindustrialization. Now we've already established that Alice was right about, you know, of course, tithing. So why why has Vietnam avoided that trap? Why has Vietnam avoided premature deindustrialization? I don't know. I have not studied the Vietnamese economy very well, but to from a very, very, very superficial look, Vietnam had cheap enough labor and some labor and financial repression to jump into the export economy, even though it was very difficult at the time. I think, you know, part of the reason why, say, for example, Indian manufacturing couldn't compete against China is that their labor costs were already high by the 1980s. Vietnam, coming out of a very, very devastating form of communism, had such low wages that perhaps that created a, a, a some sort of uh, space for them. You know, I'm certainly not advocating that type of labor repression, but that timing again might have just created enough room for Vietnam to do it. But it, they have done it in a very repressive way ever since. Okay, now you mentioned India, and that's a great point. Um, in many developing countries like India, firms are very small. Do you see small firm size as a barrier to technology adoption and worker marginal productivity? Absolutely both. You know, uh, and that's the sort of, we're not, Simon and I, let me emphasize that, I'll emphasize it a couple of times. We're not advocating slower automation. We're advocating automation, but going hand in hand with new tasks. If you look at the data in the United States, and I think it's similar, but I've looked at the data in the United States and in France on this, but it's similar in other countries as well, so far as I know, the adoption of all kinds of technologies increases quite strongly with firm size. Small firms, even in a country like the United States that has reasonable financial markets and uh, and room for small firms to actually yeah, access credit and things like that, they just don't. Economies of scale, all of the planning, all of these things probably make it very difficult for them. So they don't automate, they're more labor intensive, but they also don't adopt the new tasks. There are exceptions. Those exceptions tend to be those small firms that start very innovative. Uh, for example, if you look at small firms that actually patent or do R&D, they grow very fast and they introduce new products, they introduce new tasks. But the large number of small firms uh, that are not very innovative are not technologically advanced in terms of adoption either. And, and I think that's actually a problem. You know, this... You know, my previous books were very much motivated by economic development, the big gulf of political and economic and social development that exists around the world. The current book with Simon is much more focused on the industrialized world, though with lessons and concerns for the developing world as well. But if you're going to talk about technology in the developing world, you have to worry about small firms, 
slow technology adoption, even when there is a lot of returns to it, informality in the labor market, which is really a barrier to both worker power, worker voice, worker productivity. So all of these issues, you know, we avoid by focusing on the industrialized world. Okay, let, let's avoid them and let's skip back to England, 19th century industrialization. So here's a question for you. Why did it take many decades before 19th century industrialization improved public welfare in England, but, but such a short time in South Korea? You know, let's understand what happened in England and then we can compare it to South Korea. You know, three factors, I mean, there are many. Three factors all undergirded by one institutional factor is what I would emphasize. First, a lot of the early technologies in the British Industrial Revolution were of the automating sort. Textile machinery, first in spinning and then in weaving, or coal mines that you know created very harsh conditions. None of those were conducive to greater increased worker marginal productivity. Second, worker power was very, very low. Trade unions were uh, banned and very heavily prosecuted. Child labor was endemic. You know, children as young as five or six were sent to work 18 hours deep in mines as late as 1840s. And uh, similarly related to worker power, the modern factory system was designed to be very oppressive, discipline, high, you know, low autonomy, high discipline, low autonomy. And then finally, Industrialization came with a much greater fraction of the population living in cities, and there was no public infrastructure, no sanitation, no sewage system, infectious diseases, pollution were horrible for the people, living conditions were awful. So all three of these factors are critical for understanding why the conditions of the working class in, in England at least until the 1840s, were so abysmal. And all of this are, of course, undergirded by the fact that the UK was not a democracy. You know, the franchise was very limited. The middle classes were already being enfranchised by the First Reform Act, but the middle classes, and this is the vision issue, very revolutionary in their ways, but had no sympathy for the lower down strata of society. In fact, they wanted to emulate the upper classes. In fact, they may have been harsher towards the working people, both because of their ideological sort of hangups and also because they wanted cheap labor. And that was very important for them, much more important for them than you know, the landed gentry in the UK. The, the situation changed in the United Kingdom. It actually changed quite rapidly. It changed as trade unions became legal, the country democratized, technological change moved from away from automation towards new tasks and increasing worker productivity. And there were some critical uh, investments in, in public infrastructure, including in uh, water sewage, uh, fight against infectious diseases, and so on. Now, if you look at South Korea, I think the situation was already better for the latter type of investments in the United Kingdom. First of all, South Korea 
came into industrialization at a time when uh, it could import a lot of technologies that were semi-automated, but also increased worker productivity. South Korea later on started investing in more and more automation, but that's in the context of labor scarcity because of its aging. So that's a very different type of automation in some sense. Second, South Korea historically has had a, <clears throat> a very strong labor movement. So, uh, you know, even during General Park, the labor movement was sort of... Uh, nascent and creating trouble in certain factories. So there was a limit to how much repression you could engage in. You know, the, the military was quite heavy-handed under General Park and his followers, but the labor movement was there and, uh, and, and it wasn't like in Vietnam where you could, you know, completely repress labor. And then finally, you know, the, the sort of the, the model of economic development also in, involved a lot of public infrastructure building. You know, early on, the land reforms and education investments were very key, and then investing more in public infrastructure was uh, sort of was sort of continued. So far as I understand, so all of these three were sort of transporting South Korea, so to speak, the second phase of the British Industrial Revolution. So you, I, I'm with you in terms of timing and piggybacking on pre-existing technology, which enabled it to harness its assets of high skills at low labor costs, including cheap food. Like, for example, abortion, the fact that you could have abortion enabled women to rapidly seize new economic opportunities rather than staying at home. The fact there was massively improved sanitation means that you didn't need women to be doing all that care labor. So all these pre-existing technologies, I'm totally with you. I'm not persuaded by your point on institutions, though. I think over the 1970s, there was extreme labor repression. You only have a much more militarized labor movement towards the late 1980s. So I'm with you on pre-existing technology, but we'll disagree on institutions. OK, let's jump to the USA. Why did the USA enjoy shared prosperity after World War II? Well, actually, let me tell you one thing about the USA, about historically, and then I'll come back to the Okay. Because we mentioned the South Korean labor shortage, you know, why that was, you know, labor shortage is great for labor, but not just through the simple neoclassical mechanism, it also encourages the type of technologies and the path of technological progress that you try to make best use of your scarce factor. So that was also the story for the uh, US in the 19th century. Skilled labor especially was very short. So you had to use skilled labor very well, but you also had to make the unskilled labor perform some of the tasks that skilled labor could do. And that was a lot of investments in machinery that increased the productivity of unskilled labor, including via training, but including via standardization, interchangeable parts, American system of manufacturing. So all of those you know, actually created a path upon which, say, Henry Ford and car manufacturing and then other heavy industries also built. But the the... The, the three decades that followed World War II are really sort of the, the, uh, the apex of this. So you have rapid automation, just like you had in the 19th century with the interchangeable part system standardizing some tasks, and Henry Ford introducing electrical machinery, uh, more sort of uh, for its time, more advanced labor replacing machinery. But at the same time, Exactly like during those times, you had all these new tasks in manufacturing that were critical as technical tasks, as machine operation, 
that required training, that required higher wages and care and careful work from, from employees throughout both manufacturing and outside of the manufacturing. So technology was taking not just an automation direction, but these new tasks that were critical for labor's marginal productivity to increase. At the same time, you know, the labor movement that had become stronger during New Deal sort of, uh, sort of continued with some setbacks in the post-war era. Now, the labor movement did not always play a positive role. I think uh, trade unions in the United States have sometimes shot themselves in the foot, but in their best moments, uh, they negotiated both secure employment conditions, high wages, and new tasks for their employees. UAW sometimes bargain on exactly the right things, not just high wages, but let's adopt technologies while at the same time we find good uses for uh, for workers with strong training. And also critically, this was developing in the context of a regulatory environment which was building up as a counterweight, a countervailing power against the cloud of the biggest companies. So this is the period in which you have all sorts of regulations for safety of products, uh, for antitrust. So it created an, an environment in which big companies could be productive, could be powerful, but not excessively powerful. Okay, so now we see... Now, now, now we come to the rise of inequality. So in your book, you say the most important driver of the increase in inequality and the loss of ground for the American workers is the new social bias of technology. So I have a question for you. Do you think the new social bias of technology is a cause or a consequence of falling worker power? Both. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Both. So. So what let me let me clarify oh, that statement first. Yeah, I mean, sorry, sorry. because it's not obvious. I mean, it would not have been obvious to me that that would be so. And this is the basis of a lot of the arguments of the book. And it draws on my research with Pasquale Restrepo. Uh, for example, we find that a very large fraction, 50 to 70 percent of the increase in between detailed demographic group inequality in the United States can be explained by automation. So automation is really playing a critical role because some demographic groups, such as people who have postgraduate degrees, are getting complementary technologies and are not being displaced by machines, whereas other groups are facing competition against machines in a way that reduces their uh, wages sometimes, or at least stagnates their wages. And that's a big push towards inequality. What do you think of the Stansbury and Summers paper that industries with larger declines in their labor rents had increases in profits to capital? So they, they find that manufacturing was not the biggest, was not the industry with the biggest decline in, in labor rents. Uh, so I think manufacturing has always been the place where labor is best organized. And that's a double-edged sword. When you start with good organization of labor, that's going to retard things for a while, but that's also where both the incentives for automation and the fall in the labor share could be sharpest if managers uh, succeed in reducing labor power. So, you know, this is one another fact that's very well known, but not sufficiently incorporated into people's thinking. If you look at the U.S. period, the U.S. you know post post nineteen eighty era, there's a very sharp decline in aggregate labor share, but it is driven mostly by, by manufacturing. It's not 
like in the services or healthcare or education. It's really in manufacturing. And it's not all manufacturing. Some manufacturing sectors are maintaining their labor share, both for technology and labor bargaining power reasons. And some of them are having very sharp declines in their labor share. So again, if you look at which are the sectors where you have these sharp declines, it is those that are automating. And why is that coming? Well, first of all, automation is displacing workers, automating production processes. But second, automation is also clawing back some of the labor rents. So that's the way, and this is some of the new work that I'm doing with Pasquale is exactly about this sort of automation in imperfect labor markets, so to speak. Okay, can I play devil's advocate? Please. So you argue that globalization isn't responsible for falling worker power, right? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, but what we are saying is that globalization hasn't had quite the same impact as automation. Now, two things. First of all, globalization should be distinguished in, well, three-way three, three distinction. One, which is financial globalization. We don't talk much about it, and it's not super important, I think, for this debate, but maybe in the future become turn out to be more important. Second, trade in goods. And third, offshoring. So offshoring is actually quite important, but it's actually smaller in the set of industries and tasks that it, it affects than automation in offices and automation on factory lines. But offshoring works very similar to automation and it has similar effects. That's what Pasquale and I find. Trade in goods, that's quite important in, for example, people being displaced from their work, from their jobs. But its effects on inequality are more limited for two reasons. One, uh, this is the simplest, simpler one to understand. If you look at the sectors that have been affected by globalization, they weren't the high-wage, high-rent sectors. So textiles, apparel, simple assembly. So workers were paid decent wages there, but they weren't like paid the type of wages that manufacturing workers received in cars, metals, electronics, petrochemicals, and so on. So therefore, the fallout in terms of wages wasn't as severe. Second, you know, trade is a sectoral reallocation. Sectoral reallocation has very important consequences, but its inequality effects are somewhat more indirect. Whereas automation really hits the tasks and the demographic groups specialize in those tasks much more directly. Okay, so I'm with you. But then we have a question about what led to this rise of automation. And I think there are two different explanations. Mm -hmm. One might be it's agency, it's um, economists like Friedman with their cost-cutting initiatives and their ideological power. But another possible explanation is perhaps more structural. So over the 1970s and 80s, Western labor costs rose, regulations tightened, as you mentioned, and East Asia became much more competitive. Absolutely. Oh, no, no. We say that in the book. We don't perhaps emphasize this as much, but let me completely agree. We're 100% right, Alice. I would say there are three factors that are really important. One is the vision, for example, coming from Milton Friedman about what managers should do. Second is the vision of the tech industry. Let's not forget that. You know, the Milton Friedman vision could have gone in many different ways. It got channeled into automation because the tech industry at the time also provided the tools for automation. So those two are very important. But the third is competition. Labor cost saving became so important, 
partly because of reality and partly because of the image of the Japanese companies destroying American manufacturing. So, uh, so you know, many of those ideas of lean workplaces with lower labor costs gain popularity in the context of discussing how can we compete against China, against Japan, and then China. So, so I would see, I would, you know, put the push for this more sort of structural narrative that. As the so you don't think ideas matter, Alice? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to mess with you, Dora. Just to mess. I'm making this all up, right? So, what about say as the inevitable outcome of economic growth in both the East and the West? Then you get this higher pressure for automation. And so, you know, whatever economists came up with, what it was bound to spread Absolutely. because that was working Absolutely. with. Absolutely, there, that's 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 part of the issue. But you know, again, the fact that it hasn't worked out quite the same way across different nations, all of them exposed to China trade, suggests that that's not the only thing. For example, Germany, you know, Germany has gotten some things right, some things wrong. Uh, you know, there are many pockets of inefficiency in the German economy, but their manufacturing sector is doing quite well, especially export-facing manufacturing sector. And they didn't go to full automation. They are far ahead of the United States in terms of robot adoption. But at the same time as they are adopting robots, they're also creating new technical tasks for workers. And that has turned out to be pretty good for productivity. But wait, I would distinguish between two points. So my argument would be that automation is an inev is, is inevitable because of the growth in the East and the West. And that's happening everywhere, even in Germany, as you say. Mm, exactly. So the difference is not whether firms adopt automation, but how they adopt in response. Okay. Good, good, perfect. That's that's even more compelling. Yes. So, so now my, here's my follow-up question on Germany. So how do you know that this job preservation is due to German institutions, their worker councils, rather than their human capital, you know, their three-year apprenticeships, et cetera, that drive a strong worker commitment, et cetera? Both. Okay. So absolutely, worker training is critical. Part of the reason why firms try to uh, upgrade the skills of blue collar workers when they introduce robots is because these workers are very valuable. They have a lot of firm specific and industry specific, very valuable skills. But that apprenticeship system is institutional. It's part of the critical institutions of the German labor market. So I wouldn't see that as separately from institutions. And in fact, human capital, as for example, schooling human capital is lower in Germany because many people go into this vocational track relative to their American counterparts, which go to general schooling. But also other aspects of labor market institutions matter. So very nice paper by my colleague Simon Yeager and Benjamin Schorheider, for example, shows that German manufacturing companies that have work councils adopt more robots than those that don't. And the reason for that is because work councils improve the communication between workers and uh, work councils and workers, worker representation on boards. So worker representation on boards communicates the relevant information to workers and they say, oh, okay, well, we, we have to adopt the robots, perhaps because of the international competition, as you've argued. But then they also make adjustments so that you know workers don't are not excessively harmed by that. But they are harmed, by the way. There's a very nice paper uh, on German robots that finds that exactly like in the U.S., when German companies introduce robots, that reduces their blue-collar worker share and it has some negative effects on wages, but not as much on on employment as in the United States. Okay, back to the U.S. question: Why do you think Silicon Valley is failing to produce technology that improves worker marginal productivity? 
And that I think is both tech vision and what the companies are demanding. So again, I am a huge fan of Silicon Valley in the abstract. I think the US has greatly benefited from the energy risk-taking creativity of Silicon Valley. But I think it is possible to have that risk-taking and creativity without so much focus on automation. And the automation focus came because there were two visions of the tech industry and one of them won. It's uh, like the hackers who thought that uh, personal computers would be liberating, decentralizing, and so on. People like Douglas Engelbart and J.C.R. Licklider, who thought that you could go to what Simon and I call machine usefulness, develop computers in a way to increase marginal productivity. But it turned out that the most profitable thing was to, pro pro to produce software for big companies. And IBM, Oracle, Microsoft excelled at this, and that's what carried it. And they had an ideology like a mixture of libertarian and Alan Turing's vision of autonomous machine intelligence that pushed Silicon Valley more and more towards let's produce computers designed by geniuses to be used by fools. That's a term that they used to use. Uh, but at the same time, it became synergistic with the vision of large US companies that said, we want technologies to, uh, <clears throat> to, to reduce labor costs. So the two visions became synergistic. As early as 1950, you know, some managers was, were marveling at how numerically controlled machinery was the first step towards a workerless factory. So that vision was always there. Okay. I want to question this idea with a counterfactual. So in Taiwan, there is much more democratic participation in technology, right? Has this led to technology with a better social bias or with higher worker marginal productivity? Well, uh, I think it has. I think wages have been relatively high in Taiwan and workers are central in many of the key production facilities. It has also certainly led to greater worker participation in industrial decisions, debates and more democratic participation. But, you know, I have, again, I'm not an expert on the Taiwanese economy, you know, the counterfactual of what would have happened to Taiwanese wages without a, with a different direction of technology. I think that would be a fascinating thing to study. Uh, sir, 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 I, was, I wasn't clear. I mean, I mean, has the, has the technology that they've innovated, that they've developed, has that been better or different because of these institutions? Like, have oh. they, like so your argument is No, because is like, Taiwan is producing technologies for the U.S. market too at the end, and they are synergistic with... You know, the chips they produce are then being used by Silicon Valley companies. So Taiwan is not a quite a uh, okay. leader in the direction of technology, although, you know, they've been super innovative. Okay. Okay. Uh, oh, I only have two questions left. Lucky you. <laughs> okay. So um, you you say, you know, we need to redirect technology. We and, and you talk about this sort of top-down style industrial policy, like competitions and prizes for tech that improves productivity with a social bias, right? But now let me play devil's advocate. Aren't innovations always a product of their designers? And this, at present, this is very narrow. This is an educated male elite. Mm -hmm. And don't we really need is for government bureaucrats or people who desperately care about inequalities to be empowered with technological skills that enable 
enable them to innovate at the front lines about the that they care about you know don't we need to think about a nation of tech whiz kids you know including women for example you know so i'm thinking instead of focusing on institutions or top-down level industrial policy what about saying you know let's skill the you know there's this new book recoding america what about making tech skills you know strong across the population and then everyone will be innovating in ways that in addressing the inequalities that they see absolutely absolutely that's super useful and needs to be done but it is just one of the levers. You know, uh, there are hundreds of promising startups in Silicon Valley. It's not just Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. But you know what happens to many of these startups? They got acquired. Many of their technologies are sidelined. And even worse, knowing that the most direct route to riches for a startup founder is to be acquired by Google, they choose their technologies to be consistent and compatible mm. with Google's vision. Right. So it's not just, you know, the startups and the new ideas, the whole uh, ecosystem matters. But, you know, let me just take this by steps because I think you've jumped into the key conclusion of, you know, my life's work and not everybody accepts it. I don't know how, but, you know, you know, the, the idea is, and this is at the center of, the book technology is very malleable you know we skipped this step and we said automation new tasks why can you do both automation and new tasks or a different balance of it? because technology is malleable there's nothing in the nature of the binary code that says it should automate you know autonomous intelligent machines is not the only way to develop digital technologies nor was it the most productive way of de developing it douglas engelbart you know, has played a really formative role, for example, with his innovations like hypertext and the mouse and what his students did, collaborators did in the Xerox Park. You know, so there are many different ways of developing these technologies. Now, even once you admit that, there are two arguments that you can make against the sort of redirecting technological agenda. One is, for example, best summarized by the British science writer, Matt Ridley, which is, you know, innovation is always completely decentralized and organic. There is no way anybody can guide it, either an entrepreneur or a bureaucrat. You just have to let those different weeds grow in their own speed. If that's the world, any redirection is not going to work. Or second, that even though technology is malleable, you need these geniuses who kind of have amazing ideas and there's no other way of developing it. So... So Simon and I are, and, and, and part of my work before then, is departing from this and saying, no, yes, of course, this organic decentralized nature is important, but research agendas are important as well. Those weeds can grow on the left and the right, and which ones are you going to encourage more? How are you going to redirect the powerful forces of a river? It could go this direction or that direction, and there are many choices there. And they may have different social consequences, and that's what we have to recognize. And it's not just geniuses, that's what you're saying. The whole ecosystem matters. So I very much agree with that. The market structure matters. Who are the innovators matters. What is the motivation of the innovators matters. But on the other hand, you said, let the bureaucrats who care about inequality. I think there I have to be very careful because I disagree with the view that the government can be the driver of technological change. I think 
historical evidence and econometric evidence shows that government bureaucrats are not very good at picking technologies, picking winners, deciding social objectives. I think what the government can do is like the NASA, DARPA, Department of Defense model or NIH model when it was successful, set broad agendas and it is the private sector's innovativeness, energy risk-taking that within that agenda flourishes. Oh, sorry, I should clarify. When I when I when I meant about um, gov user, uh, government and uh, innovation, I really meant the individual level bureaucrat being skilled in technology and then thinking about what technology would be good for them to help improve the functioning oh, okay. of yes. the bureaucracy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. like there are lots of things in which government tech is really, really bad. Absolutely. And we might see some improvements if if government workers themselves could think, hey, this would be better if we did absolutely. this and that. Absolutely. That's and let me give a shout out to Taiwan, where Audrey Tang is their digital uh, digital minister has done exactly that in building participatory uh, platforms, new ways in which the government can communicate with voters, voters can make proposals, and, and all sorts of decentralization tools. And you, we, you mentioned firm size, and I want to go full circle into what we were discussing earlier. So very poor countries have a lot of tiny firms, and this is one factor that impedes the adoption of new technologies along with precarity, et cetera. So small, small, poor countries are, are trapped with tiny firms and that impedes technological adoption, which of course prevents uh, structural transformation. Meanwhile, ultra rich countries have, have grown so much that these firms are so large and they're the ones adopting all the new technologies. So they get even richer. So it's like we have these two binary worlds at the polar ends of structural transformation. Either you're a country with firms so small you don't grow or firms so big that you remain rich and unequal. Mm, very interesting. You know, if you look at the US, this is gonna to be tautological, but there are very innovative and very low innovation small firms. The very innovative small firms are really critical for the more successful technology development in the United States because they come up with new ideas. They grow very fast. They have very fast CFP growth. They generate a lot of patents per employees. So, you know, on the other hand, the low innovation, small firms are low productivity and they don't contribute to job creation all that much. So the question is, can you have a market structure regulatory environment such that you don't shut off the growth prospects of these high innovation small firms, but at the same time, encourage the other small firms sometimes to either grow or disappear so that labor resources can be reallocated to more efficient use. I don't think anybody has a perfect formula for that. Okay, final questions. So I want to talk about social media. So you and I both agree that this is a big problem in terms of authoritarianism um, and also filter bubbles and disinformation. How do you think a digital advertising tax would change social media? So thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, digital ad tax is one of our several policy proposals. Let me first preface that by saying we should perhaps, we say this in the book, but we should emphasize it even more. Our policy proposals are made in the spirit of generating ideas we're not sure that any one of them would be adopted or would not be the you know, would be the best ones as opposed to alternatives but we are fairly keen on the digital ad tax and the reason for that is because 
the way in which a large number of companies have developed a business model in the United States is quite pernicious in its effects. It involves centralization of information. They collect a lot of data. And then they monetize that data via digital ads by making sure that users come to them, stay with them, pay a lot of attention, get very engaged. And then once they become engaged and you have the centralized information about them, you can feed them digital ads. Now, the reason why this is pernicious is twofold. One is, I think a lot of the emotional outrage, which leads on the one hand to extremism, filter bubbles, echo chambers, disinformation. On the other hand, mental health problems for lots of people that they they engage in their small circles and envy and so on. Those are all corollaries of this business model. And that those are all negative. We don't want a generation that has such mental health issues. Again, I don't think anybody knows exactly the effects of social media on mental health. There are conflicting research papers, but I think the evidence is fairly clear that it's one of the contributing factors to negative mental health outcomes. We don't want this information, which has been really bad for democratic participation. So those are direct reasons, but there's also an indirect reason. The digital ad finance business model shuts off possibilities for other business models. Today, it's impossible to have a large social platform that is based on a subscription model. Because once people get used to the free service, it's very difficult for a subscription model to enter, especially you enter small, you don't exploit the network externalities. So we we view the digital ad tax both as a corrective Pigovian tax, but also as creating room for alternative business models, which would be a very important part of this greater diversity of how you use these technologies. Do you think it would stop authoritarians from using social media to inflame hate? Like you give the incredible example of the Rohingya genocide, you know, Facebook's involvement. I don't know that. I think mm. the digital ad tax would have its most direct and more forecastable effects in the industrialized world where centralization of information is in the hands of platform. In China, there is centralization of information, some in the hands of Alibaba, but mostly in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. And that, of course, is not just a business model decision. It's just a political decision. But forgive me, how do we know that suppose Facebook could make fewer products smaller profits, how do we know they would change their strategy? Like they could just tighten the screws and do even more, you know, malign things. Could do. Absolutely. We don't know. We don't know. But again, let's think of the, you know, counterfactual history. If in the 2000s, Facebook had a subscription model, it would not be in this rush to reach a billion, two billion, three billion at all cost. And once you take away that temptation, they may have developed much better content moderation, less emotional outrage-based things, and that would have been, I think, healthier. Now, today, perhaps we are at a point of no return that whatever you do, well, of course, if you put such a high digital ad tax, you're going to create room for uh, alternative business models. But you know, I wouldn't advocate a punitive digital ad tax. And then you know, what's the right balance? There are lots of specific questions, just like in in antitrust or other types of regulatory strategies. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Those are all my questions. There are. Thank you for being such an absolute superstar. Everyone, I strongly, strongly recommend their book, 
power and progress. Um, please read it. I do hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Alice.